Right. Uh, good evening, everyone, and thank you very much for coming to the London School of Economics uh, this fine summer evening. Uh, my name is Brian Kloss. I'm a fellow in the government department here at LSE. And I am extremely delighted to uh, introduce Bill Emmett to you, who's going to be giving a wonderful talk about his new book, which, by the way, will be on sale afterwards in the lobby. Uh, Bill was the editor-in-chief of The Economist from 1993 to 2006. He's now a writer and consultant on international affairs, and he is a regular contributor to the Financial Times, the La Stampa, and also to the Nikkei Business. Uh, and he is a uh, foremost, one of the foremost experts and uh, voices out there on this fundamental idea, which I'll be talking about, the, the idea of the West. Uh, if you're on Twitter tonight and you want to tweet about this, uh, the hashtag is LSE Democracy. Uh, I'd ask you please to turn off your phones or at least put them on silent uh, during the lecture. And there will be a, a podcast, uh, if, as long as there are no technical difficulties, we'll have a podcast available uh, after the event should you want to share it uh, with other people who might be interested in it. After the talk, uh, Bill's going to talk for about 45, 40 minutes. And after that, we'll have some Q&A time from the audience. Uh, we'll have roving mics that you're able to ask questions. And followed by that, uh, Bill will be out in the lobby uh, signing books and selling them. So uh, you, you can make your way after the talk uh, out there and, and have your book signed. Uh, the talk tonight is The Fate of the West, The Battle to Save the World's Most Successful Political Idea, How the West Can Be Thriving and Indeed uh, Surviving These Challenging Times. So with that, please join me in welcoming Bill Emmett to the stage. Thanks, Brian. Oh, no, I've got... I don't need that microphone. I've got a lapel mic, which I asked for specifically. So why, why, did, why was I going for the microphone? I shouldn't. Thank you so much for coming. Um, it's wonderful to see you all here, as Brian says, on this hot summer evening. Um, my topic is the topic of my book, The Fate of the West. Um, and to some degree, I may not need to explain exactly why I'm talking about it, beyond the fact that I have a book to sell, I suppose. Um, this is a time of great political volatility. A time when, in France, a new political party founded one, less than one year ago sweeps to power a 39-year-old president, um, the youngest since Napoleon, taking um, a landslide hold on the assembly. That's the positive side of the great political volatility in Britain, as we all know, a party that brought Brexit, that was managing Brexit, that went into an election that was entirely logical to hold that election, in my view, 20 points ahead in the opinion polls and ended up with a humiliating setback. But also, we see other phenomena of that nature, even on the other side of the world, in Japan, uh, in Tokyo, a brand new political party in the, in the Tokyo Metropolitan Assembly, and since Tokyo is uh, um, one of the largest countries in the, uh, in the world in GDP terms, that's a big assembly. Um, suddenly, the, the governor of Tokyo founded a new party and swept aside the old political dinosaurs uh, just a month ago. So we see that political volatility. Our question is whether it's a good or a bad thing. Is it a sign of the health of democracy or is it um, a sign of some fraying of democracy? Uh, 
It's very much a time of the questioning of American leadership, the leadership that, like it or not, we have lived with uh, for much of the post-war period, that, like it or not, we have come to assume will be there. Um, we may not agree with Madeleine Albright that the U.S. is the indispensable superpower, but we certainly tend to believe that it and its presence is a constant. Uh, but under Donald Trump, are we sure about that? We are questioning about what he wants to do. We're questioning about what he can do. We are questioning about the initiatives he's going to bring. Above all, it's a time in this country of confusion and own incoherence about the biggest strategic decision that we've taken in uh, four or five decades, the decision to leave the European Union, confusion about what that means, about how to execute it, about what post-Brexit economic and foreign policy strategy in this country will be. But more broadly, it's a time of disaffection, a disaffection among electorates that lead to this sense of political volatility, a disaffection principally measured or at least indicated by falling real incomes, by the fact that real incomes, average real incomes in many Western countries are lower today than they were 10 years ago, that recovery of jobs, of employment, uh, even when it's happened uh, rapidly in the United Kingdom and the United States, has not brought recovery in wages and incomes. Uh, and in the UK, uh, thanks to a faster inflation rate, real incomes are falling again. So it's a time in which we have some loss of hope or some loss of faith for the new generation, but also alongside that, a strong sense of uh, injustice about the way in which uh, our societies have evolved um, over the last 10 years at least. But as we look at it, we need to ask ourselves whether this and all this anxiety about democracy, about uh, American leadership, about political volatility, about the future of countries we've called the West, is this simply or might it simply be a question of raised expectations? We have, uh, we as electorates, we as citizens have built up high expectations. We are, by any objective measure, um, living in uh, the most prosperous time in history in which uh, lives are longer, healthier, more secure in Western countries than they have ever been before. Perhaps this volatility is about disappointed expectations rather than reality. Is this uh, simply a sense of uh, fluctuations of, of belief uh, and uh, expectation? Well, my view and what I'll argue in this uh, lecture is that uh, while we have in our democracies had fluctuations of uh, affection and disaffection, of sense of hope and sense of fear, we seem at present to be, to be going beyond that normal range of fluctuations, particularly in the United States and this country, but also, I think, in Europe uh, and in the sense of 
of dilemma and uh, dysfunction that has built up inside the European Union over recent years. I reflect and must reflect that we have seen such crises before. Um, I quote in my book a, a, a quotation that was made by the Trilateral Commission, the then newly founded early 1970s creation funded by David Rockefeller to connect together Europe, Japan, and America in a constructive dialogue um, of um, the democracies. That, that organization in 1974 published a book called Crisis of Democracy, and in it it quoted Willy Brandt, the then uh, Chancellor of the then West Germany, uh, as saying that um, in his view, democracy in Western Europe had at best 20 to 30 more years to carry on, to survive. Beyond that, Brandt said, it will sink beneath the surrounding ocean of dictatorship and authoritarianism. Clearly, he wasn't good at prediction. That was a wonderfully false forecast. And our question now, as we look at and have, to some degree, a sense of crisis and of difficulties in our democracies, the question is, will such gloomy views be wrong again? Will we see that our democracies have retained the power of evolution, of an ability to make mistakes and correct them, an ability to uh, remedy errors that is superior to that of authoritarian and more rigid regimes. My argument is that I believe we will find that such gloomy predictions are wrong again. We do retain the power of evolution, of flexibility, of correcting our mistakes. But we need to recognize that there are differences today um, perhaps there are always differences in each crisis, but there are differences. There are differences in the external environment, particularly because of the pressure of China as a new rising superpower with a different view about international law in particular. There are differences because of the changing structure of our societies with a different balance of aging, of demography that has shifted to some degree voting power from young towards old, and clearly there are differences because of the size of the inequality that we have seen develop in income and wealth over uh, the past 20 to 30 years that has stretched some of the sense of cohesion uh, and of collective interest uh, that we have. So when I say that I will conclude by saying that I believe that we can and will uh, throw off the dangers that we have in front of us, that we will save the world's most successful political idea. I'm not being starry-eyed. I believe that there are some important tasks to achieve. But let me row back a little bit and ask two questions, or answer two questions, rather, that you should and will be asking. One, what on earth do I mean by the West? And second, what do I mean by the world's most successful political idea? I've just come back from two weeks in Japan where I was launching the Japanese edition of this book. And the Japanese publisher, um, I expected to dispute 
the, the use of the phrase the West on the basis that it would confuse Japanese readers. Where is Japan? How can Japan, the land of the rising sun, be in the West? But no, the Japanese publisher were happy with the Japanese equivalent of the West. They wanted a nastier or more terminal word instead of fate. They used end of, end of the West in their translation, wanting to um, have a more apocalyptic view, which we had quite an argument about. But nevertheless, they were very happy and indeed flattered that I included them in what I mean by the West. Because I do. What I mean by the West is any society, any country that has adopted essentially an open society with democratic accountability and the rule of law, which means a sense of equality among citizens, of equal political rights to vote, to defend yourself equally in front of the law, and all of the other things that have come with uh, citizenship. That combination of openness and equality is what has spread and spread and spread since 1945 to more and more countries. And meanwhile, that idea of that way to organize your society has been built up and, and is put in a framework of international alliances, of NATO and uh, the US-Japan Security Treaty and other security alliances, but above all international law and treaties such as the World Trade Organization, International Maritime Organization, the whole panoply of UN uh, law and uh, Universal Declaration of Human Rights um, and so on and so forth. That it is the West, therefore, in my meaning, is every country that has an open, essentially evolutionary society with equal political rights that, is there, that are therefore connected together since the 1945 or 1950s by the network of alliances and law that um, we have seen. Some readers and some questioners think that um, I should have used uh, a longer phrase to, to put as the West, uh, liberal democracy or something like that, to which my first answer is that I'm a newspaper man um, and uh, I know what words fit in headlines. Um, many years ago, uh, I remember fondly getting a fax, as they were then, from the late great Peter Drucker, the management and political economy writer, um, complaining about the fact that we had called him a management guru. And he said that he had long been convinced that uh, the word guru had become uh, used for people like him because the word charlatan was too long for a newspaper headline. So I can see his point, and the West is a, uh, an abbreviation. But I hope you, you and other readers will forgive the abbreviation. It's an abbreviation that I share with the President of the United States in his speech made in Poland um, a couple of weeks ago, in which he said that one of the fundamental, or the most fundamental question of our time is whether we have the will, or whether Western countries have the will to survive. He said, and asked the question, whether we are willing to 
preserve our civilization, as he put it, against those who would wish to subvert and destroy it. As you would imagine, people he had in mind as the subverters and destroyers are rather different from the ones I have in mind. He has in mind Islamic State. He may have in mind those who have a global view uh, of things. He may have in mind anyone with a trade surplus with the United States. What I have in mind is Donald Trump, um, of course. What I have in mind is anyone in a position of influence and, in his case, authority and leadership, who is seeking to unravel or reverse that trend towards openness, that construction of alliances and international law and treaties that have created the opportunity for so much prosperity uh, and framework for peace, a managed competition rather than um, conflict, either economic or political. So he is my threat to the Western civilization, um, and perhaps I'm his, I don't know, since I'm from the fake news media, um, quite possibly. So that is the, that is the problem that, that I am analyzing in this book. Why is it in trouble? Why is the West in trouble, really? Uh, I think um, I need to uh, develop and explain that. I essentially believe that it's in trouble because of a long, some long-term tendencies that are inherent in democracy and inherent in the market system that then have come up against or rather partly <coughs> produced the very massive short-term phenomenon of the 2008 financial crisis. When I say the long-term tendencies that are inherent to democracy, I'm meaning the build-up of interest group power, sort of sclerosis that, uh, that develops in our democracies. I'm following very much the argument of Mansa Olson in The Rise and Decline of Nations uh, and his other works on why interest groups form, how difficult they are to dislodge, and the effect that they have uh, both politically and, in his view, particularly economically. I think that this sclerosis is a natural process of competition. Our democracies are, like our markets, competitive uh, fora in which um, all the incentive is to accumulate like disproportionate power for you and your fellows in your interest group. Tendency to monopoly has been, of course, acknowledged um, ever since Adam Smith. The tendency to try to monopolize democracy has not been, is more often overlooked because it happens bit by bit. It's invisible, but also because our democracies usually succeed in neutralizing it. You have one lot of interest groups balancing another. The strength of those trade unions or that lawyers association or those farmers or that medical association gets eroded over time and perhaps doesn't seem to produce an enormous sense of uh, crisis in democracy. But I think, as Mansa Olson argued, that 
um, this process is nevertheless dangerous to our democracies, to the workings of them, and the way in which people who are not in those positions of, of power, uh, of privilege, if you like, within an interest group, uh, feel about um, the weight of their political voice, the, scent, the meaning of their vote, the uh, ability of, um, of them to get an influence. Now what we call the left behind, but I think really it's about political inequality and a loss of voice. This process, I think, is the background to the 2008 financial crisis, uh, and I do believe that historians in the future will, or at least should, analyze the 2008 financial crisis as as much, or perhaps more, a political event than a murmur, a heart murmur in financial markets, or um, uh, an econom a part of an economic cycle. I say that because I think that the, while economic trends of the 1990s and, this, and the first decade of this century might well have led to some uh, complacency, the great moderation could have, would have led to complacency to some relaxation of, uh, of regulatory um, determination and oversight, Somebody's phone's ringing. just need to point that out. Um, it's not mine. That was what I was hoping. <laughs> um, um, some loss of regulatory attention. That could well have happened uh, in any case, but I think that uh, uh, in many countries. But I think what we saw, rather, was the amplification of that sort of natural process of attention and uh, a lack of attention that uh, long periods of economic growth, growth can produce as... The city, Wall Street, banks in France, banks in Germany, banks in Spain, accrued what I think we can see with hindsight was disproportionate influence over public policy. Disproportionate influence over the level of regulation, very directly. Uh, one can see it in, in America in the lobbying to prevent regulation of the derivatives markets, to keep them off uh, exchange, out of sight, and so forth. In Britain, in the pressure for very light-touch regulation um, during uh, Gordon Brown's time at the Treasury, but also in the way in the credit bubble, or maximal credit bubble countries like, France, like um, Ireland and Spain, the banking system and politics became intertwined uh, and essentially a form of corruption uh, produced, if you like, the last two or three years of the property booms in those countries. So I see the financial crisis of 2008 as having been of the scale that it was and of the internationally connected nature that it was essentially for political reasons, because of the way in which uh, the financial sector came to dominate politics and bias politics and helped to obscure the reality of what was going on. Crises do come and go, but the scale of that crisis, um, I think, is something that needs more explanation than simply um, 
than, than simply a sort of uh, cycle of confidence and lack of confidence that we have seen um, from booms and busts in the past. Because the consequences of the 2008 financial crisis are, as we I hope all know, um, living with us uh, on a daily basis. It produced a humongous loss of faith in the system, in the economic system, not just in the financial system, but in the essential fairness of the political system as well, a political system that rescued the banks but foreclosed on the borrowers, in political systems that um, failed to punish bankers who had, uh, had produced this outcome um, and instead um, pressured uh, wages and pension adjustments for everyone else. We'll come round to whether what was avoidable and what wasn't avoidable once you got into that situation uh, and perhaps when we, when we have Q&A, but that, that has produced the enormous loss of faith in the system, it seems to me, is an absolute absolutely clear point. Almost 10 years after that financial crisis and the effects of what has happened, a uh, couple of things seem to prevail. One is that although there has been some tightening of regulation of the banking system in many countries and on a global scale, it hasn't, in my estimation, really changed the fundamentals of um, the sort of risks that banks can take, the sort of obscurity with which large parts of financial transactions are taking place, and the ability to have massive cross-border speculative flows of capital um, that are, as Adair Turner called them, um, of no social use. But also, um, what has happened in that time that partly back goes behind that is that governments were... Um, too frozen in the headlights of economic crisis to be able to do much about the power of the banking system because they needed lending to be resumed, they needed lending to carry on, they were somewhat um, uh, impotent in the face of the crisis that, that was there. But thirdly, uh, with the passage of time, with a decade having passed, I think the significance of that financial crisis started to move down the sense of awareness. What's my evidence for that? Well, I think that too much of the time, and really well, this is what my arguing, too much of the time something called globalization is blamed for the disaffection and the political volatility that we're seeing. I don't think globalization is the right way to describe uh, what um, the crisis that, uh, that uh, has been seen in in politics or in, uh, in, in economies, I think that the basic crises are within our democracies, within our societies, in the way in which we have managed uh, the sense of financial liberalization that produced the enormous interest group politics and interest group power that then uh, diverted public policy in the way I've described. It's an internal crisis of our democracies rather than something that is, some, that is, as implied by the word globalization, external to us. I don't, I think, I see globalization as being simply the consequence of openness. It is an outcome, not a policy. 
It is an outcome of domestic decisions to go for more open trade, more open flow of ideas, more open flow of migration, rather than being somehow something that is uh, imposed upon us by um, international events or international trends. Globalization is an outcome. It can be reinforced by technology and has been reinforced by technology. The way in which connectedness happens, just as the electric telegraph did in the 19th century and the railway and the steam train uh, and the steamship. But the basic issues are about the way in which our own societies have dealt with um, internal disruption, internal dysfunction in our political systems. So the political consequences we've seen are clear. First of all, in the United States, the election of Barack Obama in 2008 was really a consequence of some of the longer-term rise of inequality in that society, as well as a backlash against the Iraq War and against the Republicans for it. But Obama's ability to do anything much beyond his health care uh, uh, plan was uh, restricted, indeed swamped, by the need to deal with the financial crisis which happened uh, just before he won the election. Eight years later, we get Donald Trump um, because the, um, the, uh, the, 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 the malaise in the American economy, the malaise in American society had continued um, uh, in that time that inequality had, uh, remains an, an enormous issue uh, and a desire for an outsider, for an anti-establishment figure was there. In Britain, the consequence was the rise of UKIP uh, and the way in which that then fed into the decision to hold a referendum on Brexit. In Italy, the consequence has been the rise of the internet-based five-star movement, now leading in the opinion polls, um, running certain uh, cities, uh, including Rome and Turin, uh, in that country, leading in the opinion polls, led by someone outside politics, outside parliament, Beppe Grillo, the comedian, absolutely um, organized around the notion of a plague on all your houses um, and other populist parties uh, that we all know about. So where is this heading and where are we going to go and why can I, can I um, be optimistic about it? Well, I do acknowledge that while alongside the 2008 financial crisis we have long-term stresses that we have needed to, to deal with um, and have not dealt with necessarily very well, some of those are to do with technology and the displacement through automation uh, and redistribution effects um, in the skill in the, in the income uh, income to skill ratio. Some of them are to do with demography, the aging of our societies, and the different burdens that are coming. Some are, of course, to do with uh, the rise of China and the development of all our emerging markets that have produced a great greater sense of uh, of inequality um, in most countries, but not all. As I said. That our ability to deal with those long-term stresses was overwhelmed by the 2008 crisis and the effect that it's had on our public finances. Uh, uh, 
we probably wouldn't have dealt with them perfectly, but the natural processes of adjustment would have happened, I think, within our democracies to, to some of those trends had 2008 not happened. Where are we now? We are, again, in an adjustment period. I think that now that we are 10 years out of the uh, financial crisis and have struggled through long periods of austerity uh, in both Europe and America, we are in a period in which some of the basic policy uh, assumptions that were taken on um, after 2008 seemingly survival assumptions can and I think will now be rethought. It will be rethought because what lies behind the political volatility is, I think, a loss of that balance between openness and equality. To my mind, as a a dyed-in-the-wool liberal, uh, I do think that the only way to restore dynamism to sclerotic economies is is a form of liberalization, forms of of restoration of market competition, attacks on monopolies of Google and Facebook, the sort of Teddy Roosevelt uh, approach to um, malefactors of great wealth who have often built up their power through oligopoly or or, uh, monopoly. I think that a liberal approach is essential, and there is a basic consensus towards a broadly liberal approach. But that approach needs to be balanced by investments in equality, in the social mobility and sense of citizenship that have enabled our societies in the past to deal with the disruptive effect of openness, with the crises that we have gone through at at many times in the past. I think it would be foolish of me to try to predict the future course of American politics, it being um, something of a mystery to many people, including, I suspect, Donald Trump himself, exactly how his administration is going to develop, exactly how, or in any sense, how, um, how that country is going to cope with, uh, with his, uh, his leadership. I think that we will see a test uh, within his administration on whether it wants to be really to go against the international system on trade. We've already seen tests of whether or not it really wanted to declare NATO obsolete or uh, punish Japan or South Korea for not spending enough on American bases or something like that. And there has been a swing back uh, to, if you like, orthodoxy even if it's an orthodoxy mixed with unpredictability. But in trade, I think that there is a a, a real test to come in American uh, policy, chiefly because of what Donald Trump's deeply held beliefs are about trade and trade deficits and what fair trade consists of, but also because his political uh, uh, desires and his political interests are going to depend on popularity in his, among his core voters, which are not only but substantially voters in Rust Belt states. So I think that we are likely to see played out over the next 12 months a battle over whether or not 
um, the, the world trading system should be um, overturned, whether it should be undermined by um, uh, high tariffs on steel, by the use of a national security exemption uh, to um, build trade barriers on steel and, and the effect that might have on the World Trade Organization. That's going to be a test not only of the international system and of whether we, what, what, how countries respond if it's done, but most of all it'll be a test of the, of the discourse and the consensus inside the United States itself, particularly between parts of the business community and the political establishment, a discourse inside the Republican Party, a discourse inside the Democrats as well about trade and openness and hence about um, the international treaty-based system that we've had. I find that very hard to predict how that's going to turn out, uh, but I think that we're going to see it tested over the next 12 months. I think the I ideas of law-based trade are likely to prevail because I think that the balance of interest inside the America is likely to be on that side, uh, and I think uh, that uh, Donald Trump and his administration is getting progressively weaker and therefore less able to push through or sustain um, major initiatives of that kind. But we're only six months in and therefore it's too soon really to say. But in Europe, uh, I think that we are going to see um, a, a major period of adjustment and rethinking of um, the way in which liberalization can be managed and the way in which equality needs to be invested in. Obviously, President Macron will be um, the biggest test case of that. And his uh, uh, placing of his, of his uh, emphasis on Nordic-style or Scandinavian-style labor market reform, mixing... Uh, job uh, assistance investment uh, and uh, support for those changing jobs with a more flexible labor market represents his awareness of that he needs to do that, that he needs both to liberalize and to invest in equality. But we will see, I think, a particular test in how Germany changes its position after its federal elections in September. Uh, when Chancellor Merkel is likely to return to power, but possibly with a new coalition, um, depending on, obviously, the results. And I think then there will be a test of whether Germany is at that point, given the, the, the uh, stronger confidence that they'll have in Europe based on Macron being there and the unity that's been seen around Brexit, whether or not Germany will be willing to, um, if you like, declare victory and retreat um, on the management of the Eurozone and of, on the fiscal constraints surrounding uh, economic governance in Europe to, the, to a sufficient extent to allow countries some, some room both to promote growth and to uh, spend money on all of the things that are necessary for equality. In Britain, I think the turmoil of the June election shows that we are in a state of, uh, of, uh, of trying to find a new consensus, 
not actually about Brexit, because I think the, the key background to that election uh, result is the fact that membership of the European Union scores very low on most voters' priorities, list of issues that uh, they care about, number 10, 11, or 12, and that the top 10 are all about jobs and health care and, uh, and schools uh, and all of those issues, that a total focus on Brexit didn't cut enough ice and a, a set of promises that were about a rethinking of the balance between openness and equality, which was essentially the Labour manifesto, uh, pulled a consensus away from the Conservative Party. And now I think we will see a reshaping of British politics around that, that need and that requirement. So I, the optimistic side in me is that I believe that while uh, we have uh, many challenges before us, that dynamic of, of exploration of a new balance between openness and equality, a sense of learning from the mistakes that we've had, and I hope we can, uh, hope a rethinking of the role and the freedom of the banking sector in our um, societies and in our politics is going to produce um, something of a revival and a restoration of our democracies over the next decade, such that those who think that the West is doomed will have the same prediction success as Willy Brunt in 1974. I'll stop there and ask for your questions when you have them. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much for that wonderful and sweeping uh, talk. Um, we're going to do some questions from the audience. I'm just going to start with uh, two of my own um, to get the ball rolling. So, I mean, the, the first two things that strike me, one is uh, the discussion that is a little bit absent from your talk about polarization. And uh, I think you rightly point out that the threat to the West comes from within. But we do have electorates, uh, particularly in the United States, the UK, etc., where you know, tens of millions of people seem to, to inhabit fundamentally different realities um, in a way that is, is in, in, in my uh, view, unprecedented. And, and a lot of the data on polarization shows that. So my first question is about how you think polarization gets fixed in a way that we can develop a consensus, a way forward. And the second question is, um, with the West having this crisis of confidence, um, when you were in charge of The Economist, we had this ever-growing sphere of what the West meant, right? We have all these countries joining the ranks. Eastern Europe joins the ranks of the West, etc. What is happening now as that crisis of confidence occurs in the West to countries outside the West that used to, as Ronald Reagan put it, look to the shining city upon a hill in Washington or uh, to Western Europe as the model to aspire to? And, and, and how does this look from the West emanating outward? Okay, good. Uh, thank you. Good questions. I think um, on polarization, I, I feel that it's less unprecedented than, like, than, the, than uh, the kind of data-driven consensus has. But nevertheless, the fact is that it's true, uh, particularly in the United States. Uh, I think less so in other places. Uh, the United States has, a, you know, has, a, have, have, has had a particularly long build-up um, of that form of polarization, particularly in the cultural wars of one kind or another, um, that I don't see as being a very good explanation for 
political events in Britain or France or, or uh, other parts of Europe or certainly not Japan. So I think it's a particularly American, American issue. Uh, I think, because I, I don't know how that's going to be dealt with, I think that it will be dealt with by responses to failure, however. I think that uh, the political system and what we've seen with the Republicans since uh, January is a, is a political system that uh, has been very polarized, that has, has essentially been, a, been, a, been a, a stop the opposition system rather than uh, in any sense a bipartisan system. Uh, and I think the Republicans are absolutely uh, stumbling uh, and falling over their inability to, to govern. Uh, and I think out of that probably quite a debacle this year um, in both healthcare and tax reform and others, uh, I, I would hope that there would be some renewed interest in, in, in bipartisan operations that may come indeed from the discrediting of the presidency uh, and uh, like a, uh, a circumventing of the presidency. Uh, that, now, what the consensus will be, um, of course, I'm not entirely... I can't, I can't predict. It could include some protectionism. As I've said, there are plenty of Democrats who, uh, who uh, in democratic states where, where protectionism is, is, is popular. So it may not be entirely to my taste, but that I think we will see some increase in, in that. I, I would just add as a, an addendum that I think trends in the media have contributed to polarization, which is an increase, the increasing fragmentation of the media not specifically social media is, as is often said, but I think uh, the fragmentation of the media has meant that we've had less, we have today uh, and, uh, clearly less of a common conversation and less of a common media arena that we had than we had 30, 40, 50 years ago, uh, both, on both sides of the Atlantic. Uh, and that that fragmentation is reinforcing some of the polarization. So your second question, um, what, is this, what is this doing to countries outside the West? Well, I think um, although countries outside, or countries even seemingly inside the West um, have been showing some sort of uh, revanchist um, uh, in instincts and uh, retreating from uh, constitutional democracy and, uh, and uh, liberalism, uh, as in Poland, as in Hungary, obviously as in Turkey. Uh, I think that that's a response to, to some extent, the loss, the loss of the shining light, but mainly internal stresses that come from uh, the long uh, financial crisis and, in Turkey's case, uh, internal stresses that have to do with the security situation in its, in its region uh, that, have, uh, that have facilitated that. What we aren't seeing is, as it were, the, the building up of alternative models. Um, authoritarianism, obviously, is always temp tempting, but uh, there isn't where a, 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 a bandwagoning around a Chinese model. Um, there's increased dependency on China to some, to some, in some areas, but there isn't a sense that what we need to do is try to build, try to follow their system or follow somebody else's system. Mm. I don't think there's an alternative model to the West, but liberal democracy has not been uh, succeeding and delivering uh, in the way that it did before, so it has lost some of its appeal. Okay. 
Great. Are there some questions from the audience? Um, let's start back there, maybe. Is there some with the Rovi mic? If you could try to keep it to uh, a succinct question so that everybody has a chance, that would be great. I'll try and keep my answers succinct <laughs> as well. Hi. Um, my name is Conrad. I'm a graduate student uh, here at LSE. Um, so you talked about the political volatility and also the rise of the populist. Um, and, I mean, we heard about Facebook struggling with, with fake news. We heard about um, Cambridge Analytics, who may or may not had a huge influence on, on the U.S. elections. Um, so my question would be, what do you think are the influences um, of the social media on maybe the fate of the West or at least the rise of the populistic parties? Thanks. Well, I, I think that the populists um, are responding to genuine disaffection, genuine grievances in the way that populists have responded to such grievances throughout uh, modern history. In other words, uh, if, if the old way fails, then you come up with new, um, new proposals. Some of them are snake oil proposals and some of them are not. So I don't think that, it's, uh, I don't think that populism is in any way a, a phenomenon to be, a, to be associated with social media. Um, it's to be associated with stress and difficulty and, uh, and a reaction to failure. Um, what I think about social media is that it is, it is reinforcing some of the fragmentation of, com of, of information flow and communication that's come also through uh, the, um, the multiplication of television channels, through the multiplication of of uh, publications and uh, TV through the internet that has, if you like, reduced, to take a British example, reduced the dominance of the BBC, reduced in America the dominance of the, of the, of the big networks um, in terms of what, where people are getting their basic information. So it then opens up the, the path for um, highly targeted um, campaigning of the sort associated now with Cambridge uh, Analytica uh, because you've got such fragmented uh, audiences and fragmented attention uh, if you can get data through Facebook uh, and other social media about individuals yes you can tailor your messages to, to, to them and that clearly is what, what, um, what happened both in Brexit in the, Bre in the Brexit referendum and in, uh, in, in the U.S. election and perhaps in others. Uh, but how much difference it made, I have yet to see a convincing case for, um, for the idea that it was decisive. Now, obviously, the U.S. election, it was swung by 60,000, 70,000 votes in a small number of states. So the potential for that having been shifted by very targeted uh, campaigning of that, of that sort, whether it's whether it's um, fake news or, or real news is, isn't the issue. It's targeted. Uh, the potential is there. I, I, I would be much less convinced that it, that it had a decisive effect um, in, the, in the referendum in Britain because the gap was too large uh, to, to be likely to have, have such an effect from, from that method. But we'll see. No questions. Um, maybe over here. Thank you. Uh, if I understand your thesis, it seems to be essentially that the 2008 crisis was really more a political phenomenon rather than a financial one, and that related to sort of problems of internal control rather than global, a global issue. Um, 
and your solution is to address the internal. Uh, my question is that really, given the international movement of finance, ideas and manpower, isn't really the global problem not really uh, controllable uh, unless you take a very uh, authoritarian approach as per China? Well, you can... Uh, I mean, you're saying that uh, China's approach is to, is, is to control capital movements in the way that we used to in the 1960s. I don't see how we have the opportunity internally rather than globally to control the problems that you're talking about. Well, I, I don't see why. I, I don't follow that at all. I mean, I think that uh, if we wish to regulate our banks as well as Canada did, um, then we could have done so. Uh, was Canada impoverished by the free movement of, uh, of finance and, and of capital um, by doing a better job at, uh, at uh, regulating banks and not letting them bias their public policy in quite the same way? How about Sweden, which did the same, um, partly because it had had its financial crisis um, in the early 1990s and had learned enough from it? I think that there are enough cases of countries that are able to control some of those, those problems that I don't think we should throw up our hands and say um, we are impotent thanks to globally mobile Goldman Sachs and, um, and, and people able to get on trains and planes. Obviously, we could follow an, uh, a policy of, of more authoritarian approach, but would you vote for it? No, well, we could vote for it. The Hungarians uh, allegedly have voted for it. Um, that's what uh, Viktor Orban claims they've done anyway. I, I mean, he's, he sort of keeps on... Uh, fixing the cards, mind you. Uh, question just over there, next to the previous questioner. Yeah. Thank you. Hi. Um, two criticisms of democracy are, firstly, um, the conflict between the duo motivation of the electorate, so that is between voters who um, aim towards the hegemonic moral um, outcome and voters who vote out of self-interest. And the second being the fault of inefficiency. So as Plato and others have argued that, um, that voters aren't educated enough to truly understand the very complex uh, management of the state. So my questions, uh, two questions are, firstly, um, do these contribute towards the fate of the West? And secondly, what is the value of democracy taking these things into account beyond the ideological value that it holds? Well, my, my answer would be that the, the value of democracy is its, is its ability to be a self-correcting uh, process with, in a peaceful way. So I think that the, the, the strength of democracy is that it uh, enables, way, enables us to deal with social conflict and uh, the disruptive effect of change in ways that avoid civil war, essentially, and that re don't require authoritarian systems. Uh, and thereby allows our societies to be more flexible, more evolutionary, uh, more creative, uh, less rigid. Um, yes, it's inefficient. Yes, people vote on self-interest. Um, but we can get around the inefficiency over time by you know, allowing ourselves to adjust. 
uh, we get over the self-interest by balancing them and making sure that the self-interest of each group doesn't become overwhelming and, uh, and become a tyranny of, of a minority. Um, so I think that's the way a, a well-functioning democracy has worked. And finally, um, we have more of a bottom-up society. Um, but perhaps that Plato view and, the, and so forth is, is kind of a sense that what you need is the benevolent dictator. Um, and that would be the efficient process. Well, I think that our democracies are, like the market system, essentially sort of discovery mechanisms that, uh, that from a more bottom-up creative process, actually that's the main way things are driven, but corrected to some degree by representative government. So I, have, I retain more faith than those... Uh, and those criticisms say. Well, it, it, I mean, I, I, I do think that democracy has inherent flaws, particularly this sort of tendency towards sclerosis and a tendency towards interest groups uh, gaining disproportionate power. So that I think democracies. Um, perhaps in a, you know, you might even call it a sort of quasi-Marxist way, I think it, it, it does go through crises of, of, uh, of uh, 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 over time that then need to be corrected. Uh, but that is obviously in parallel with economic crises. We've had periodic times when we've dealt with social crises by big expansions in the vote, in the franchise, by um, big expansions in uh, public education, by expansions of the welfare state. We have to do that in order to kind of maintain faith in the system, uh, to get over the, I think, at least what history tells us as the inevitable um, uh, cycle of crises that we go through. Any questions up there, maybe in the middle? Top? Yeah, you. Uh. <laughs> uh, hello. I was wondering, to what extent do you think... Um, the fate of the West relies on economic growth, and in particular economic growth that benefits, say, the bulk of, the bulk of uh, society through, say, the working and middle classes. And also, what do you think, whether a, a secular stagnation was to set in, do you think that that would make um, the West less open and um, less interested about issues such as inequality in society as a whole? I think that it does depend on economic growth. That doesn't mean kind of go for... Go for you know, um, uh, go f uh, hell for leather sort of economic growth. But I do think that, that um, to maintain faith in our, in, in, our, in our system and in our society, we need pro a sense of growth that provides a surplus that we can then use to solve social problems, solve economic problems, that, that generates also uh, enough change that people can move around, can have a sense that new generations will be Will, will, uh, will be able to do new things and be better off that provides the lubrication for social mobility. So I do think that economic growth is essential and it does need to be broadly based. I think that uh, an economic growth that benefits like the 1% um, is never going to be politically sustainable. Um, secular stagnation would be uh, very bad for our, um, the, the survivability of our democracy. Um, Japan has had secular stagnation essentially over the past 20 years. Uh, that's slightly unfair because their growth um, has been you know, well above zero, but nevertheless, they've had quite a stagnant period. Uh, and I'd say that they have 
held, held things together because they have such a cohesive society. Um, and that that has helped to avoid the sort of conflicts that uh, would, I think, arise in other less cohesive societies. So I would worry if we really were stuck in circular stagnation. Down here in the front. Yes. Wait till the, the mic. Sorry. Thanks very much. Um, Surely we're in a far better situation than a century ago when most countries were colonies and even if you were in Britain or in the United States, if you were female, you didn't have a vote and woe betide you if you were an African-American. So uh, as recently as 30 years ago, you still had the Iron Curtain and apartheid in South Africa. So my question is, surely... Uh, Notwithstanding the fact we've got an, an enormous number of problems at the moment, surely um, we have reason to be, uh, to, to, to be optimistic. And as you pointed out, yes, populism has always been around. Trump, water will find its own level. He's already been challenged both in, his, uh, both in the Congress and the Supreme Court. And we all know that Mrs May is going to have a few problems without a stable majority. No, I mean, I agree with you. Look, I, that's what I meant when I was sort of ruminating aloud about is this a matter of expectations? You know, that, uh, that uh, we feel that we've got all these problems because actually we expect we, 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 everything's been so good. Um, we are in a much better situation than 100 years ago, better situation than 30 years ago. The spread of, of uh, prosperity and, uh, and progress and, um, and good health has been uh, extraordinary. So I, I think that we are, we are absolutely... Um, in a place where we have the capabilities and the resources and I think the sense still of social cohesion that means that we can solve these problems. Yes, let's be optimistic. Great. Uh, down here in the blue. How can democracy begin to deal with our environmental crisis, that of climate change, which could, has the potential to negatively, negatively impact living standards across the world? And what is the role of citizens aligning their vision into democracy? Well, I think that, yes, I mean, environmental crisis is a problem for democracy only because it's a very long-term one. I mean, it's an intergenerational problem. Uh, in that sense. I mean, I, I think democracies have always dealt, work, dealt with environmental crises once enough people cared about them. Uh, so China um, has had a longer environmental crisis than we would have done if it had a democracy uh, in the, since the 1990s and 2000s as the air and the water and the soil have become essentially you know, un, unbreathable, undrinkable, and, and so forth. Um, had China had a democracy, as Japan did in the 1970s, when it had the same environmental crisis, it would have dealt with it faster. However, China is dealing with it because the pressure of public opinion um, is at you know, absolutely hard on solving these problems. So I think that uh, democracy can deal with environmental crises. Climate change is such a long-term issue that it's a harder one to uh, build a consensus around long-term mitigation, long-term solutions. But I think we're gradually seeing democracies able to, um, to, to make those, or to, to form a, an agreement around some of those necessities. Uh, and so, I, yes, it's difficult um, because it's long-term and unpredictable and you pay now and the benefit may come somewhat later. But I think that we're in a crab-like way, moving towards those solutions. Do you think I'm complacent and far too optimistic? 
perhaps uh, I'm, I, my, pes- my potential pessimism here comes from how democracy can uh, feed back into the market, how the market could help deal with climate change as well. And I think that's a, a link that's lacking at the moment. Right. No, I mean, I, I, I just ba- basically I think democracy is always better at dealing with the environment than the alternative, but that doesn't mean that democracy is good at dealing with it. Um, and yes, it absolutely does need to, to use the market but in, 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 a, in an adjusted way towards kind of democratic priorities. Um, but bringing the externalities of, of environmental uh, costs um, into, into market prices and into market thinking. I, I, I definitely agree with that. Uh, one up there in the far corner. Try to make sure we've got people upstairs as well involved. So my, um, my question today is... Um, would you agree to some extent that this uh, rise of these new radicals, these angry populist movements, is not due to a, um, a revolt against globalisation and immigration and free markets, but rather an outcry against this growing class of elites and oligarchs who are far removed from the people? So, for example, with the EU, it was not a vote against free movement, but to vote against um, Eurocrats who, reg- who regulate for 300 million people. And, um, and the answer to this is a sort of liberal um, revolution to, sol- to save the West, um, not through the, the techniques of these new radicals and uh, populists, but, for example, with a new type of democracy, with direct democracy or AV voting, in order to help smaller parties get a, a greater say in Parliament. Well, I think, um, I mean, I agree with you that the rise in radical parties is about inequality. Um, inequality of various, in various ways. I think often, uh, uh, I mean, all, uh, major times in our political history, uh, big changes have generally been about inequality. I mean, have been about uh, you know, a dispossessed group that then demands to be, to be uh, heard and to, be, to become part of the, 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 the democratic discourse. Uh, and um, I think now is no exception. Um, I, wouldn't, I, d- I would disagree with you in your explanation of the Brexit vote in the way you described it, but nevertheless that there is a, you know, a, a kind of general uh, alienation at a, a sense of inequality, um, particularly oligarchical, plutocratic inequality, but not only that. I think is true and incontestable. I would, if you looked at, if we look at Britain, um, I absolutely agree that um, a more proportional electoral system is a desirable political reform, and indeed I argue for that in the chapter on Britain in the book, um, because I think that our our binary two-party system uh, leaves too many people out. It's very polarizing, um, and in a nation um, uh, as complex as, as, as ours is, it's always going to, um, to leave a lot of groups feeling that their voices are not heard. Uh, uh, now, pol- proportional systems are not perfect either. Um, they can become dominated by the by a, a constant, constant uh, elite uh, in the center of politics. So I, I, we, we shouldn't be too um, starry-eyed about them, but nevertheless, I do think in the British context they're desirable. Uh, I'm a skeptic about um, a big increase in direct democracy uh, simply because I think that uh, 
getting people sufficiently engaged and informed on a, on a really regular basis would be such a difficult uh, task that um, it would be very hard to really to, to make direct democracy on a big scale work as a superior, in a superior way to representative democracy. Um, the American experience with, with referendums is that people will always vote to cut their taxes, um, but at the same time they'll vote to increase public spending and never put them together. Uh, well, that's obviously to do with the way in which the referendum, the ballot initiative system has, 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 has worked and been and evolved, but it does somewhat illustrate the problem of, of uh, that it becomes single-issue voting and single-issue debates uh, rather than the sort of compromises and, and trade-offs that are necessary in government. So I'm a bit, I'm more skeptical probably than you are about direct democracy. Okay. Uh, in the back there. Thank you. Um, my question result, uh, revolves around um, civil liberties and free speech. So uh, there seems to be this very subtle curtailment of free speech, especially in the UK and the USA. And don't you think that it is these outlandish figures who come along like Trump who make these very outlandish, be they racist or bigoted statements, and then it turns out that there's a large proportion of the electorate who actually hold these opinions in a very almost underlying, very quiet sort of regarded way? And would you not say that liberal democracy gives rise to these very... Um, incubated, moderate lines of debate that do not allow these more radical elements to be discussed properly. And that is why we see characters like Trump and despots come to rise in liberal democracies. Well, I certainly, I, I mean, I would be with you, and you'd be surprised if I wasn't as a, kind of as a, as a journalist, uh, I'd be with you in, in believing that free speech should be as wide and, and uh, untrammeled as possible, and that... Um, any trend to put limits on it, in particular to put, make certain subjects taboo to the whole no-platforming campaign, the, the sort of safe space kind of movement, I think is very negative and very damaging because it uh, will then lead to some of the encouragement of, of, of forces that, that you say because essentially those um, ideas of, of uh, bigotry of one kind or another will never go away. Um, and, uh, and, uh, but by limiting discussion of them, you can, in, in a perverse sense, legitimize them. So I, I absolutely think that, uh, that uh, we should fight uh, at every stage efforts to limit free speech and to restrict debate. Um, I think that the populists and the Trump-type people have risen more because, for economic reasons, but... Uh, they, they also are able to, to uh, generate support through some of the, the methods and arguments that you've used. I mean, he certainly uh, treats political correctness, as he calls it, as one of his, uh, his bugbears and, uh, and as a justification for some of the pretty awful things he says. I think it's a side effect of something else. I think we, how we conduct our debates in our democracy is up to us, and we have to battle as citizens to keep them open. Uh, and I do, you know, I very much believe in the role of citizens. Actually, I forgot to answer your question on that. Um, it, it, and, and groups at, at every level in maintaining 
the, the kind of the, uh, the proper flow of the lifeblood of, of, of uh, democratic discussion and, and, and uh, information flow, but also of the exchange of ideas. Uh, it's not something that's imposed from below. It's a question of whether we care about it uh, and, and uh, what we do about it. I apologize. Sorry, can we just can we wait to the for the Q and A and rather than yeah no I'm sorry this isn't I'm sorry excuse me can we please just have the Q and A session um, who's up next um, yes back here in the green and um, kind of following up from the question on climate change do you think that a Western democracy um, is capable of dealing with long-term problems when it's sort of incentivized to think short-term, to sort of please the current sort of voting cycle and so forth? Do you think it, it can effectively deal with long-term problems? Well, yes, I think it can. It clearly does so with difficulty. Um, we definitely all have short-term incentives, electoral cycles, and short attention spans. But... Um, but you know, I think in, you know, the, if you think in the past, you know, massive investments in public education were uh, you know, um, efforts to, to uh, build for something for the long term. They didn't produce immediate uh, benefits. They were long-term investments. I think that we, uh, democracies do, do deal with long-term issues, but they clearly do so sort of, as I said, in a crab-like sort of way and uh, maybe, you know, maybe not uh, as smoothly as we would like them to. But I think, uh, thanks to uh, free speech and debate and, uh, and um, the sort of the, the exchange of a huge amount of information about something like climate change, I think if you look at where we are today in policy on on climate and on emissions and so forth, and you took if you took that back 25 years and said, "Are you surprised by how much has changed in that time?" I suspect that anyone 25 years ago would be astonished um, at how much has been done. But it's a, it's a, the, the, uh, the real difficulty with climate change is that it's a global issue. I mean, that um, it's an issue that one country can't, uh, can't deal with adequately and that you need collective action among um, a very large number of countries and that uh, really having an impact um, requires these international agreements and trust and so forth and that's the big problem. I don't think it's democracy as such. Um, it's it's uh, the difficulty of connecting together sufficient number of countries to act um, and, and trust each other to act rather than to compete. Uh, down here, please. Yeah, sorry, he'll bring the... Thank you. Um, I'm also a career newspaper writer and a college professor, and I write for an economic uh, newspaper in uh, Los Angeles, Long Beach. Um, one of the things that struck me in your conversation, your, your lecture, was the, uh, the 2008 economic crisis. In my interviews with um, economists in California after that, many of them pointed to the fact that in a very short period of time, the U.S. economy shed a great deal of jobs a large number of jobs. And it turns out we really didn't need those jobs. The economy went along just fine without them. Things got produced, services were provided. Um, in looking at the recent elections, 
um, what we uh, American politics is kind of like Santa Claus. Vote for me, and I'll give you more money. Um, it seems to be the overriding promise. And the question is, can democracies survive the continued campaigns of promises that are going to economic promises that are going to be increasingly difficult to fulfill in an economy that is rapidly, rapidly shedding jobs, automating, as, uh, as one economist uh, that I uh, uh, interviewed uh, said, a robot is a very, very difficult thing to work against. And they, I've seen you know, estimates that 30 to 50% of the jobs that we have today will disappear in 20 years and be replaced by menial service jobs, if anything. Can this idea of the West survive that sort of fundamental economic change, or is that view of the uh, economic future um, inaccurate, and why? Well, I think it's a, it's a view of the future, and therefore, by definition, it's ina inaccurate, because we don't know, um, and, it, and uh, those sorts of assumptions of 30 to 50 percent of whatever are based on on all sorts, of, uh, all sorts of assumptions about how things are going to go. Now, however, that uh, automation is underway and that it has changed the structure of uh, employment and, and industry is clearly incontestable, just as it's been true at times in the past. What we do see, however, is a productivity paradox. We have low, indeed slowing, productivity growth alongside all this apparent technological change. And we have, in fact, low levels of capital investment, um, both in the United States and in, 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 uh, on, in Europe, I mean, and certainly in this country. So if there was currently a massive job-shedding wave of automation, we would see two things. One, we would see a big rise in capital investment, because people would be substituting capital for labor. Secondly, we would see a rise in productivity, Get rid of the people, you get more output from each individual person you hire. We are not seeing either of those. Now, so that doesn't tell us what, anything about the future. It tells us about today. It tells us that this isn't happening now. What is hap has happened over a period of 25 years is, of course, um, automation in factories and of all sorts of things and the, everything from the automatic, automated telemachine on. Um, that, of course, we've seen a lot of automation, but we see a cycling of, of roles and jobs and so forth in our um, economies. You will note in the American economy that jobs have increased dramatically in recent years. America has not been shedding jobs, it's been adding jobs. However, it has also had a lot of people leaving the labor force, discouraged workers. Why? Because, well, all sorts of reasons of malaise of one kind or another, but, you know, fundamentally, uh, an inability, at least in their regions, to get a job that makes it worthwhile going out. So that tells you something about the, the way in which the wage distribution has, has, has changed, and also it tells you something about the way in which federal policy towards the minimum wage has evolved with a huge drop in that. So I think we, we've got a, quite a complex set of variables here, but one area I do think that uh, governments should be intervening is in now in the wage market, in the labor market, something I would never have said in the high inflation period of the 80s, 90s, or, or so on. But now, 
with secular stagnation being a danger, with this big change in the distribution of incomes, um, and with a lot of weakness right at the bottom of the, of the income scale, I think efforts to raise the minimum wage, which some states are doing, as you know, California, one among them, uh, is absolutely the right thing to do because it will also encourage new people into the labor market and actually will encourage some higher productivity. Now, will we, do we have in the long term, once we get out of our current situation, do we have a fear, a fear of the rise of the robots? Personally, I don't. I think that, um, that the, the economic dynamic that brings that sort of level of investment is one in which people are making enough money and spending enough money to create a beneficial economic cycle that does produce that automation. I don't know how you stimulate the demand for this massive automation if you've got a secular stagnation going on at the same time and a depressed economy. Who's paying to, 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 uh, to generate the business to, to bring in all this automation? So I think that there's a kind of self-refuting uh, problem with, with, as it were, the extreme end of the, of the, of the predictions, that, that you couldn't get that sort of job displacement because the demand for finished goods would be so depressed by that level of job displacement that you wouldn't have the investment in all of those robots. So it's a kind of, you know, that, that means you're in secular stagnation. Um, if, you're, if you've not got that, that demand. So I'm, a, I'm a tech, more of a kind of technologically sanguine person, but I do think that we have distributional issues, just as in the past when the railways were developed, it put a lot of, um, a lot, a lot of coachmen and, uh, and, um, and freight, you know, and, and, and canal barge um, hauliers out of business, so automation, automated driverless trucks will put truck drivers out of, out of work. And, there is change. Disruption is underway. Okay, we've got time for maybe two more questions. Uh, I will so mention Spengler in my final remarks. So over here, maybe, please. Um, following the death, or more like the execution of the pro-democratic of China. Uh, recently, uh, what do you think is going to be the fate of the East? <laughs> um, well, I think I do basically think that um, China is in a state of development where um, a freedom and freedom of choice has increased dramatically over the last 30 years, but not political freedom, um, of course. But secondly, that to get the kind of um, political and e or the sort of economic development that, that uh, China wants is going to have to expand the scope of private activity uh, and of private initiative, um, or it's not going to get it. So if it keeps currently a very monopolized system of big state-owned enterprises that basically run monopolies that uh, restrict the private sector probably Chinese economic growth is not, is, is not going to deliver what's needed. So I think that the, the Communist Party has a dilemma about how to proceed. I think Xi Jinping is clamping down in order to kind of uh, deal with grievances against the Communist Party over corruption and so forth and re try to rebuild his and the party's strength. But ultimately, I think he'll fail. Uh, and that some form of 
accountability, including the extension of the rule of law to include the party, um, is unavoidable if the East, i.e. China, is going to grow stronger and stronger. So in other words, a stronger and stronger China will have to be a more accountable one, in my belief. I think that that's been true in the evolution of South Korea. It's been true in the evolution of Japan. I think that, uh, that the strength of the middle class means, as it develops, it means that that becomes unavoidable if you're really going to keep on growing. So that fundamental choice is going to be there. When, I don't know. Okay. And last question down here in the front. Did you want, you want to make some final remarks as well? Yeah, very Thank briefly. You. Yes. So well, when talking about external challenges to the West, you mentioned China a couple of times. You never mentioned Russia. Are you not taking Mr. Putin seriously? Well, I think that Russia is a weak economy, a weak society that's playing its weakness well. Mr. Putin is um, uh, definitely an aggravating factor. I mean, he wants to throw his weight around. He wants to disrupt international law to some degree to maintain his control over his, what he thinks of as his sphere of influence. And he wants to kind of um, have his voice heard in the world. But I don't think that he can actually threaten our development I don't think he can, he can have a, a, a really global impact. Um, I think that he will be, uh, he and his successors, because he won't be there forever, um, however much uh, judo training he does, um, uh, he, uh, he and his successors will always be, if they continue in, that, in this very nationalistic uh, frame, will always be a, a problem, but I think not a fundamental threat. China, because if it continues to develop and, and, and build its strength, China is such a massive economy, such a massive society, and will, it will demand um, a kind of global level of political power and influence that is more of a challenge to the West than Russia. Russia is, yes, an issue, but it, it's not a sort of fundamental uh, threat to like the Western system or the Western or each Western country individually. China, for as long as it um, remains an authoritarian society, and because of its desire really to have a voice in the world that is essentially equivalent to that of the United States as its first aim, perhaps in the future superior to that of the United States, is clearly a, 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 a big challenge to the status quo. And how it evolves and how that relationship evolves seems to me to be you know, the fundamental issue of geopolitics. Um, clearly, we have, always, we have other issues about North Korea, about nuclear proliferation, about Islamic State. They're very severe and difficult issues, but it seems to me that every decade that you can think of, we have those kind of issues, and we deal with them. China is a, a game-changing kind of uh, you know, historical sort of change. That's why I, dif I differentiate it from Russia. Do you want to make your final remarks? Well, I'd only wanted to say, actually, just slightly in response to the gentleman about um, the decline of the West versus the fate of the West. Um, am I an Oswald Spengler of our time? Absolutely not. He thought, he predicted the end of, of European, as he saw it, by which he meant Western and European civilization, that this was in cycles that would, would inevitably come to an end. I believe that the Western cycle need never come to an end unless we screw it up. Um, and what I've been trying to convince myself and us this evening 
is that although we have clearly made a lot of mistakes, we're clearly in a lot of difficulty, there is absolutely no reason why we should continue to screw it up. We've, we've got a lot of strengths, a lot of advantages, um, and we need to learn from our mistakes and um, reculer pour mieux sauter. Great. Well, um, so just a quick reminder, um, we're going to have books for sale, this excellent and important book uh, just out in the atrium, and Bill will be signing them as well if you, if you so choose. Um, could you please join me in giving a big round of applause to Bill Emmett for his wonderful talk? Thank you.